Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation in partnership with the Compassionate Friends. Well, Heidi, you're going to talk about suicide and adopted daughter today, and I know that you and I have had discussion about this because you have a little adopted daughter also, and uh, our guest today has brought you some insight to even make some changes in your life, right? He absolutely has, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing this show. My daughter was also adopted when she was one from China, and my sister has an adopted daughter from China also, so I'm looking forward to what John Brooks has to tell us today. So John Brooks lost his adopted daughter, Casey, to suicide at the Golden Gate Bridge in 2008. She was 17 years old. A senior financial executive in the media industry, John has written a memoir, The Girl Behind the Door, which vividly describes the ordeal he has been through. He has been heavily involved in suicide prevention groups and efforts since his daughter's death. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. I couldn't have given myself a better introduction. Well, let me first say it's shocking. A 17-year-old girl dying at the Golden Gate Bridge. Our heart goes out to you and to all the families that have lost children. And we have a TV show that we did recently. I know you know some of the people that were uh, Sue Story and some of the people that were working on the Bridge uh, Rail Foundation. And thank goodness, I guess it's been passed now. I don't know how long it will take them to, to build a rail around the Golden Gate Bridge but so that there will be no more suicides there. So we want to say how sorry we are about that thank um, you. event. And tell us about Casey. She was, uh, I read your book. She was a lovely, vibrant, but also volatile young yeah. lady. Boy, how do I describe Casey in a soundbite? Uh, that's almost impossible. But just to give you a little background on her, she uh, was a preemie, probably an, an unplanned or an unwanted pregnancy. She was a surviving twin. Her twin either died in utero or died at birth. We don't know. We never told her about the twin. Uh, because Casey was a preemie, she most likely went from the delivery room to an incubator for a couple of months to an orphanage where she spent the first year of her life. So we adopted her when she was about 14 months old. And this is from Poland, right? Correct. She was in Poland. She was uh, in an orphanage in, in northern Poland about a five-hour drive north of Warsaw. And at 14 months, she couldn't do anything. She was at the developmental level of a six-month-old. She couldn't stand, couldn't crawl, couldn't sit up, couldn't do anything. But what was astonishing about her was that literally within days under our care in a cramped hotel room in Warsaw, she became an entirely different child. She was able to sit up. She was more engaged. She was more verbal. Uh, by the time my wife Erica came home with her from Poland, uh, that was five weeks later, Casey was walking the furniture. And by the time she was two, oh, she, yep, she was caught up. She was just like any other two-year-old. And then she, she grew up to be a beautiful, smart, popular young lady. She was a good student. She had friends. She got into trouble, but she also had another side of her that was that was troubling. She had temper tantrums and rages, crying jags. She seemed almost impervious to discipline, and she kept this at home. She kept this very private. Nobody outside of our house ever saw this. But because Casey seemed so, I'm using air quotes, normal, the vast majority of the time, uh, most people, including us, including our friends, including the therapist that we took her to, just kind of chalked it up to, well, she's just high-spirited. You know, you just have to be tougher mm -hmm. with her. You just have to set boundaries. Nobody, not a one, not, not a single therapist, made any connection between her behavior as a teenager and her infancy. Wow, that's pretty incredible to think about it. And I know some of the things that you have written in the book is the be tougher is not the great idea. 
I mean, already you've impacted Heidi, right, Heidi? Absolutely, because my daughter was 13 months when we adopted her. And the thing about it is there's a lot that goes on, as you know better than anyone, John, in the first year of life. You know, when our needs are not met and the whole trust versus mistrust and will my parents be there in the long run and can I count on people, et cetera. There's a lot that goes on even when we're pre-verbal. And you say something on your blog, which I love, because here I am a psychologist, so I knew all this from a cognitive academic standpoint. But when I adopted my daughter, I kind of bought into the idea that love conquers all. And the reality is, our, my first two years with her were really hard. And, you know, we can love on these kids and give them all the love, you know, that we want. But at the end of the day, they still may have these challenges. And I love the tips you're going to give us today on the show about what you would have done in hindsight, given that this was her first year of experience. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I've learned since Casey died and as I researched and interviewed people for this book is taking myself out of my shoes as an adoptive parent and putting myself into Casey's shoes and imagining how I would be if I was introduced to life separated from my mother and was pretty much left to my own devices for the first year of my life, probably spending most of it in the crib, which is not to say that Casey's caregivers were bad people. They were saints, but probably like like a lot of kids, and Heidi, maybe like your your daughter, these caregivers were overwhelmed. So the good, quiet kids like Casey were left in their cribs to to kind of deal with life on their own. And so you can imagine that if that's the way, that was your introduction into life, where you didn't have somebody there to come to you when you're in distress. You didn't have somebody there dedicated just to you to hold you in the middle of the night. You've got to figure it out on your own. And that's where these behaviors come out. You know, that makes me think of Heidi when you first got Samantha. Every time she would wake up, she would look at you and you said, I know she's thinking, not you again. And then she would howl. Mm. How many times did these kids get put to bed in one area and wake up and be in another area or have another face there? I mean, it's pretty incredible to think about going to sleep and waking up to a different caregiver. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't even know. I mean, I, I know so little about Casey's first year of life that I can only speculate about what it was like. When we were in Poland, we just didn't want to ask any questions. We didn't want to upset the deal. So we we stayed away from anything that might be controversial. We just wanted to grab Casey and get out of there and get home. With our situation, it was very similar. And we started to ask a lot of questions and were told in no uncertain terms, stop asking questions if you want to adopt your daughter and bring her home. Yep, exactly. So we, we have the same situation you have. Our first year, we have very little information about what her day-to-day looked like and what she dealt with. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could go back to the orphanage and just, if nothing else, just see the room that she slept in. But mm-hmm. I, we were too afraid to ask. We were in a visitation room. Every, everybody was perfectly friendly and cordial. But if I could just see the room, just see her crib, anything, to give me a sense of what her day was like but I can't. So fast forward, she went, she was in high school. She was going through all the stress that everybody goes through, getting ready for college, trying to decide where you're going to go, all that kind of thing. Fast forward to there, where was, what was going on at that point in the family? Well, I think for us, maybe our experience with Casey was a little bit different from Heidi's in the sense that Casey's behaviors or sort of the more troubling behaviors appeared normal when she was young. So you know, a three-year-old having a temper tantrum, it's annoying, but it's normal. A 16-year-old having a temper tantrum is not normal. So our lives with her as she went through middle school and high school, when you then introduce raging hormones, 
and all the issues that a high school kid deals with and introduce that into an attachment issue, you get kind of a toxic stew there where all of these behaviors are escalated. And that's, that's what it was like for us. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fighting, a lot of go to your room, a lot of having her grounded. And, and so for us, it just became kind of a waiting game to, to get her out to college because she kept on saying, you know, I can't wait to get out of college and I can't wait to get out of here and I can't wait to get away from you guys. And I didn't take it personally. I just figured, ah, she's just, you know, teenager just mouthing off. Right. So, the big, so the big challenge for us was to make sure that she got into the college of her choice. And Casey was the kind of student who I would kind of joke to people. She was an A student who, who kind of stumbled around with B's and C's. Mm. So I knew that she could go, she could do well anywhere, but unfortunately she just didn't have the transcript to get her into a top rate school, but she knew herself pretty well. And so she applied to Bennington College in Vermont for early decision. Her chances would be better and she got in. And that was a huge relief to us. Yeah, Yeah, that was just a huge relief because we just thought, you know, what if what if she doesn't get into the college of her choice? What's going to happen? Is she going to do something crazy? And then I know I read in the book that she worked at Williams-Sonoma as a greeter, and one of her friends there jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, right? He was somebody that she worked with there. I remember that, that she she worked with this boy, and she spoke about him, and then we learned later that, yeah, he had, he had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it was He was a senior at Tam High in Mill Valley. So here she is, it sounds like, in, in the prime of her life. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my arms around this. Here she is. She just got early admissions to a really good school, and things seem to be going relatively well, it sounds like. You're right. Just We thought, you know, we're, we're home free. So it'll just be a few more months. She'll be done with school. She'll be packing up, going off to Vermont, and then she'll be happy, and she'll have the life that she always claimed to want. So how do you explain when, in her case, everything is going well, as far as we could tell, and then she chooses death? I'm still trying to understand to this day why she did it. We had a big fight the weekend before she died. But, you know, parents fight with their kids. And you say ugly things to each other that you wish you could take back. And I remember that after that fight, I passed her in the living room on my way to bed. And she was sitting on the sofa watching TV, pounding away on her laptop. And we just glared at each other. And that's the last time I ever saw her. So the next morning, I woke up to a note on her desk. And it said, the car is parked at the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm sorry. So I immediately blamed myself. It was all my fault. I might as well have thrown her off that bridge. That's the way I felt. I just felt like if we hadn't had that fight, if I'd gone back to say I was sorry, this never would have happened. It's all my fault. And so I just simply tortured myself. And seven years later, I, I, I still hold on to a little bit of that. But when I researched and, and wrote the book, I learned that, no, it was really a lot more than that. You know, the, the note that was on her desk was not the real suicide note. The real suicide note was a text that she wrote to an online friend of hers just a couple of days before. She had gone to the bridge a couple of days before to jump, Mm -hmm. but the gate was locked. Mm -hmm. The gate was locked. Oh, wow. So she turned around and went home. But she texted something to her friend that said, I'm so tired of life and everything in it, which was heartbreaking. It was Mm -hmm. just heartbreaking. What, What was she so tired about? One of her friends told us that he felt that Casey never intended to go to college. She just wanted to prove to the world that she was smart and she could get in. But I think knowing what I know now, the prospect of being in school and not having the protections of being in home where you can let it all out was probably terrifying to her. But she would never let anybody know. She, she always put up a very stoic front. 
I don't need any help. I can do everything by myself, which is a direct result of having some kind of an attachment issue. And again, I say this as a layman. I can't say that this is a, a correct diagnosis because we don't know for sure. A lot of siblings I know have gotten in fights. We fight with our siblings. We, we love them. We sure. fight with them. We have a very complicated relationship with them. And I'm always saying to the siblings I work with, look, we fight with them because we love them. If I didn't care about you, I would invest no energy in you. Negative energy is part of love. We're trying to navigate waters, and we, we don't always agree because we live together. You know, so that's just part of love because, really, the danger is if you just don't even care about someone, you just cut them off and you feel nothing for them. Right. So, you know, I'm always telling, because as a grieving sibling and a brief sibling, that's a big piece. What you said, John, really resonated with me because a lot of us feel guilty because we fought with our siblings, you know, not knowing that they wouldn't be around forever. And the question is, if you could have her right now here, what would you say to her? I probably could never tell her I love you enough. And let me ask you this question next. Don't you think she knew it? Mm-hmm. I think she did in her own way. But let me read something. I'm just looking at some notes I have here uh, about attachment disorder. And, and let me read something to you that, that goes to what you asked. The words, I love you, can strike terror in her heart. She can't feel love, believes that it hurts, and wants nothing of it. She may manifest destructive behaviors such as self-mutilation, eating disorders, and suicidal tendencies. The point is that what I've learned about a lot of adopted children and adopted adults is that they don't feel lovable because they they feel like they've been tossed away. And I'm saying that harshly, but how could they not feel that way? I mean, how could you not struggle with just not feeling lovable? You're making a good point. Their own own mothers who, who carried them for nine months and gave birth to them then abandoned them. So if they weren't even loved by their mothers, are they lovable people? You know what I mean? I mean, some kids feel that way. Some I've talked to said, literally, I feel like trash. I feel like a piece of trash. I don't fit. And and, And now in Casey's situation, she didn't have race to deal with. Because Casey could easily look like our child in the in the supermarket checkout aisle, but what if your child is is of a different race? Right. It's more complicated. Right. Well, let me ask you. Um, you've written this book, and why did you write it, and what do you hope for it? Well, I think that when parents lose a child, uh, regardless of how they lost the child, uh, many of them feel compelled to do something to keep their memory alive, whether it's advocacy, lobbying for changes in laws, setting up a foundation. I, and I wrote a book. Uh, I, I, had, I just had so much in me that I had to get out on paper that I just, I just started writing and joined a writing group with a great writing teacher. The original story was very different from what the story became because the original story was all about me. It was all about a grieving father. And the feedback I got from the group was, it's very powerful writing, but it's too much. It's too much grief. You got to turn it around and make it about Casey. And that made it a very different book. And I think a much better book, uh, especially because it, it's not just a matter of Here's a sad story, the end, but here's a sad story, and this is what I learned from it. And this is how it can help you and Casey, and you can help the world, which, as I said, you've already helped Heidi. Did we talk about your bedtime story yet, Heidi? Well, I think that I will definitely be getting this book, and it will, you know, change some of the things I'm doing, because in the past, when you read parenting books, it's all about give kids timeouts and leave them when they're distressed and separate from them. Yep. 
cried out. And have them alone. And I think, John, what you have said is, wait a minute, you've got to really look at these kids that have been abandoned early on and rethink that. I mean, if they're, you know, in distress, don't just walk away and, and time them out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all counterintuitive. Right. I know that my daughter at night has a really hard time going to sleep. She she doesn't want to be separated. And what I've done is at 10 o'clock, I'm like, okay, that's it. We're done. You're going to bed. I'm, I'm leaving the room. And, you know, she's screaming and crying. And I'm like, Samantha, we have to go to sleep. Well, after I read some of your stuff, I said, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to do this differently. She's 10 years old, mind you. She's not little, little, little. I said, I'm going to keep reading this book to you. And I'm not, I'm going to stay in here and keep reading it to you. And you just fall asleep whenever you want. And I'll be here reading it. Do you know she goes to sleep really quickly now? Oh, that's great. She know, she's not so tensed up and anxious that I'm going to leave the second the clock strikes 10. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I'm glad that you learned this because we learned it all too late. But yeah, parenting these kids the way they really need to be parented is really hard, and it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I would suggest that you get this book, The Girl Behind the Door, A Father's Journey into the Mystery of Attachment, a memoir by John Brooks. It's a fabulous book. And please tell your friends about it and let other people know about it because it's it's an important gift that you and your daughter have given the world. Well, thanks. I I appreciate that. Thank you. And take care of yourself and keep up your good works with the suicide foundations. Is that what you're involved with, too? Well, it's a generally suicide prevention and awareness, uh, more specifically keeping on top of the powers that be to make sure that the suicide barrier goes up to, on the Golden Gate Bridge. I do a lot of work with teens because I love teens. And frankly, it was Casey's friends, even more so than my own friends, who just kept us going. And they just hung in there with us because they just missed her as much as we did. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you're a writer for Open to Hope. And uh, tell us about your website and where we can get your book. Well, my website is called parentingandattachment.com. It's where I share everything I learned about uh, adoption and attachment issues that I write about in the book. Uh, anything that I that I see just out there in the world that looks interesting that I want to share with uh, other people in the adoption community. The book itself is uh, available on Amazon uh, as a paperback, and on Kindle, it's also available in the Marine County Library. Great. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Well, thanks again for inviting me. Thanks, John, and thanks for everything you're doing out there for people that have lost hope. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Open to Hope show with Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi. And I want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please feel free to lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless. 